Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Welcome. Joining me today is Arshad Hisham, the founder and CEO of InGen Dynamics. Arshad is an internationally recognized serial entrepreneur. He's an engineer and inventor with a pretty robust academic background. He's got degrees in business engineering projects and an MBA in entrepreneurship and finance from Cranfield School of Management over in the UK. So he's got a lot more degrees and letters after his name than I do. And he's worked with companies like IBM, Toyota, Volvo, Citibank, as well as government of Australia and Greece. And he's been instrumental in shaping the trajectory of hardware automation and enterprise software. And really, he's a huge expert in robotics and AI. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is a combination of those. So welcome, Arshad. Welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you coming. Just to get started, tell us a little bit about, you talk about sort of a phased approach to robotics or to your product line. So give us kind of like a quick overview of what you guys are offering and kind of the use cases those offerings have. Sure. First of all, thank you, Alan, for inviting me on the talk. It's a pleasure to be on the call. Yeah, we live in a very interesting time, so I do get invited every other day to some of the talks because obviously AI and robotics has caught everybody's attention. We live in a very interesting time. You just heard a bit of my background. I Probably what I have not publicly written in a lot of places is that I'm a big science fiction fan. I like Asimov. Battlestar Galactica. I just watched episode four of Foundation last week, yes. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think you should read the book. I did, I did. I read it, yeah. I think it's a compass version. So I think, yeah, and one of the things that I want to do very early on, and one of the reasons I became an entrepreneur, is to bring a lot of the science fiction to reality. It's kind of what drives me to build all these companies on a money thing, right? So I think it's been an interesting journey, and this is my fifth company, and I've started a hardware automation company. I've done an ERP company, some with a good degree of success. Some didn't go well, I guess that's part of the game. But I think when I started the robotics and AI company in 2015, I did come with a lot of experience in hiring, sales, fundraising, acquisition, and I even sold one of the companies to a large conglomerate. So I think there was a lot of that experience. The thing with robotics and AI is that it's, it's extremely hard to build a company in robotics and AI. And that's where I think this phased approach, the modular approach, are not just buzzwords. It's essential for you to have meaningful progress as a company. I mean, you can't just say, we can give a hypothetical example. I mean, I don't believe in saying that we build a humanoid and invest $50 million and wait for six years before we do anything. So the modular approach and the phased approach, the difference is that we have less complex, simpler form factor with immediate needs. For example, elderly care. I mean, there is an immediate need in elderly care. Restaurant robots, severe shortage in restaurant, in restaurant labor force all across North America, right? Clear need. So you have simpler form factor where there's a clear need and the phased approach means rolling this out in a phased manner and slowly increasing the complexity 
and targeting more complex use cases as we grow. So this is kind of a crux. And if you think about it, it's really common sense, right? Why would you not do this, right? This is the right way to build a business and build a product out. I mean, you don't want to kind of create a very fancy robot with so many applications and you kind of end up being out there. I think that's the crux of it and it's modular. And by that, we mean that the mobility unit, the top part can all be interchanged. So we have an ecosystem, right? And again, this is coming in from the complexity of hardware. So hardware is notoriously hard to build, okay? Hardware is hard to build. So it makes sense to reuse and a lot of the structure that you've built in different form factors, which is what you've done. And that's actually the right thing to do in building out robotics product. And similarly with AI, I think we have an origami AI platform which you've developed since 2015, right? And that's running and powering all our products. So it's kind of getting better, more intelligent, and looking forward to the future is going to power our rover and humanoid as well. So this is kind of our vision of how we kind of progress with the products and how we kind of get to the next steps. I think it's been an interesting journey. So yeah, I mean, I would say, Alan, I think the phased approach and the modular approach is basically common sense. That's the right way to go about introducing complex products to the market. Until unless you have a lot of investor money to burn. <laughs> so then it's a different <laughs> different story. You can take take a punt on it. So I think you know this is the way of Sounds like you might have a little bit more than you used to. So we just <laughs> saw that you you've got a commitment up to $150 million during what everyone's saying is a uh, VC drought, although I guess AI is a bright spot there. But uh, congratulations on that. That's uh, that's tremendous. Thanks, Alan. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, but I think, yeah, pretty much, I think we have, I mean, one of the fascinating things with Engine is that the quarter one of this year, all our previous investors doubled and tripled their commitment. So this is kind of a fascinating thing for the company because we have, and even our retail investors who participated in 2017, I just got an email from one of our early investors saying that he wants to invest, how do I put money, right? So he just we just have people clamoring to jump in the bandwagon. But I think a lot of that has to do with the AI bus, the chat GPT, the Perval, and all the AI bus going on. But I also believe, as I mentioned to you earlier on, we didn't pivot to an AI company. We started in 2015 as a hardcore AI and robotics company when it was a very uncool thing to do. So nobody even looked at us <laughs> a second time. So you guys kind of started what with a platform, right? Which is is origami, it's called. So that's an AI platform for robotics, and then started building actual robots on top of that. So, like from what I saw first was a kind of a stationary robot with an interface that can interact, maybe in an elder care home, remind you to take your medication. And then that you're going to make that module mobile, right? So it can move around and talk to people. And then what comes after that, do you see? Let me kind of rephrase the whole whole thing, right? It's easy to look back and connect the dots. But what really happened is that when we started out, we didn't realize at that time that we were building origami, okay? We were just trying to build the robot. So we ended up creating a lot of the core components required for a platform. And even the word origami has a, good backstory. So you know what's origami, right? Just your paper thing that you create. So I think there's a reason we call it the origami platform is that our platform is like a, you can actually repurpose it to different shapes and verticals. So you kind of repurpose, take the modules, recreate it. You can roll it out on healthcare. You can roll it out on elderly care. 
So it's kind of a reason that, you know, we called it Origami. So when we started out, we did not know that this will become a prevalent platform. We were trying to create a core robot platform. Then we started building AI modules for it. We started building hardware products for it. But along the way, we realized that there were takers for the AI modules. So we then spun out the AI module and started selling it as software. And then I think the product, we were part of a prestigious accelerator called Plug and Play in Palo Alto. It's one of the top five accelerators in the U.S. So there we got feedback from Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, a lot of inputs on how a healthcare use case would look like. So we kind of pivoted. And along the way, the origami platform got built, right? So this is kind of a journey. And I'm pretty sure most of the successful companies didn't know how they will end up in ATS when they started. So it's similar to us, right? It was kind of an evolving story. We got feedback from the market, feedback from the R&D, and we kind of reached at a point. And then I think in 2020, we realized that origami is a core of our company strategy. And it's not only for our products. We had other partners, external companies who want to use it as well from a commercial perspective. And that's when it really, it really occurred to us that this is a core asset of the company. And this was going to drive company forward. Oh, fascinating. That's really cool. And so the goal is over time, you know, you have this platform that's flexible and you kind of build an increasing level of sophistication of robot. And then eventually, I mean, it is, I guess the goal is to have a humanoid robot that can perform lifting and other type tasks. What is that ultimate goal? What do you see that humanoid robot doing in the future? Sure. I think we have an ambitious vision. I'll throw some large numbers out there. If you see the world's total GDP, I think in 30 years would be around a pretty large number. And if you see around 60% of the world's GDP is driven by manual labor, right? Let me throw the stats out there. So I think that's, that's a solid number. And you're talking about a hundred trillion opportunity in 30 years. If there is automation robotics taking over, yeah, it's a large opportunity and you're talking about... So if we're about, say, I think we're about, what are we right now? U.S. is 20 something, 25 trillion. So we're about yeah, 25%. Yeah. So we're at 100 trillion, but you know, in 50 years, it'll be even more than that, right? Exactly. So I think, you know, then I think it's a huge opportunity. I think this is going to happen. And the goal is to elevate human capabilities with AI. It's very simple. This is what we, we do. We want to kind of automate and eliminate jobs that people can't do or won't do. Very important. This is a goal. And we want to free up people to do the things that really matter, increase productivity. And there is a common misconception that, you know, AI and robotics will replace jobs. I really don't think so. This has happened in every revolution, right? Industrial revolution, if you see the history, there's always been naysayers. I think this is going to open up and create more jobs and it's going to increase productivity. So definitely, there'll be a lot of reskilling. There'll be some pain in the labor market. It's going to be a, see, I'm an optimist, right? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an optimist. I, I'm pretty certain that it's, it's a rosy future. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, look at demographics, right? One of my mentors, Greg Crabtree, he does a lot of consulting for small business. And he firmly said, 2019, we ran out of labor, like, and it's not coming back. And so, you know, you're seeing that now. The statistics out of China are pretty alarming. And uh, even India looks like it's peaking. And so we're just not going to have the manual labor. So I think you're coming just in time. You must have seen it firsthand if you go to restaurants during the pandemic. You must have seen the labor shortage firsthand. And the airports in Europe, there are not people, not enough people in airports to check in. Some airports had to close. 
these are the areas that are ripe for disruption early on. That's why the restaurant robot, I mean, there's a million plus restaurants in the US. And even if 100,000 of them adopt robots, and we sell maybe 2,000, 3,000 robots, that's a 30 million opportunity recurring. Just look at the size, right? So we're probably most likely to see the robots show up as tabletop robots or small form factor doing what specific tasks, interacting with people to take care of mundane tasks before we ever see this humanoid lifting up boxes or doing other type manual labor. Is that is that sort of the thought? Yeah, I think there are two schools of thoughts, right? And I think there are people who believe that yeah, I, I would say that even big companies trying humanoids, I think the humanoids, a fully integrated, usable humanoid, addressing all the right cases is probably seven years away. Yeah, seven to 10 years away. Wow. <laughs> so where do you think I'll see first see a robot, like any kind of robot that's regular? Yeah, you're probably going to see it in restaurants. You're going to see the tabletops, which is already there. I think we have multiple requests and things running out. Then you have the elderly care facilities, and it's already happening. I think a lot of the restaurants, even if you go to Singapore, Amsterdam, I mean, a lot of the restaurants, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. I was seeing a video where robots and people, they work so seamlessly with each other. It's fascinating, right? It's like they play tag. They kind of take the plates, this moves in. They're not even stepping on each other's toes. So you're going to see a lot of that over the next 10 years. And probably you're going to see some mainstream applications of humanoid from seven to 10 years out. We also have a rover form factor, which is an autonomous security unit, which I think would kind of be very useful in an out, in securing outdoor locations instead of having security guards running around the clock. Again, it will supplement. Rather than having five security guards, you may have like two security guards and three rovers, more efficient you know, around the clock. So I think you're going to see that phase first. And then AI and robots with humans is definitely happening now in the next five years, right? For sure. Now, the standalone AI and robot making autonomous decision, that's a scary part. And going back to some of your question on killer robots and weapons, right? Do we really give that level of autonomy to robots and AI? Needs to be seen after this first phase. I think we need to cross the first phase first. Right. We'll go back to that in a minute for the Terminator stuff. That's the juicy stuff. But first, do you guys have product out in the field now, or is that sort of emerging currently, it sounds like? We have several units out. We have close to a billion hours of operation in the field for several of our products. So because it's a phased approach, we are an R&D company, but we have made sure that we started shipping everything, right? We have things out there in the real world, accumulating hours, which is super important, right? And that's what I think Seeing a lot of these robotics companies doing R&D and, and just to give you an example, there are some companies like building flying cars, which will come out in 10 years and cost $200 million to make. I mean, this is like taking a pun out there. I think it's the wrong way to kind of look into the market because robots and AI needs real world data. You need to get things out in the real world, get feedback, repeat, get feedback, repeat. So this has to happen. So I, I strongly believe in that. We should be starting to see robots like yours, if not yours, in the next year or two deployed, right? Is yeah. sort of the sense I get. We only shipped worldwide. I think we have shipped a lot of our units. We've shipped the mobility units. We're doing several pilots for the restaurant. So, yeah, I think a lot of activity going on. I think a lot of interest, and people have realized that earlier, I learned, I think, like three, four years back, a robot was like a fad. 
right? It's kind of a cool thing to have in a restaurant or a shop where people can come and say, oh, so, this is so cool, it's an AI or a robot. But now they have a real use case for it, which is what is changing, right? They're seeing the value. They're seeing, you know, why sh- you know, we should spend money on it because you're going to get a 2x, 3x return on investment in six months. So that's becoming very clear to people now at the business. So I think it's a good time yeah. they're speaking up adoption. My sense is once you get a, a restaurant chain of fast food or these fast casual, like once you show savings and the ability to have maybe one or two people rather than 10, it's going to go like wildfire, right? They're gonna... Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of room for a lot of players. Not only us, even if like there are 10 players, I think there's a lot of room for everybody. And there's a beauty of yeah, the emerging exactly. AI and robotics evolution. No more people at Applebee's, I guess. Right? <laughs> let's, so let's go back to the scary part, right? So you are at the intersection of what everybody's worried about, which is AI, autonomy, and robots. What are your, you know, and obviously this podcast focuses a lot on government. We talk about regulatory issues. So, I mean, what are you sure. hearing and what are you thinking about the dangers of this? You kind of mentioned a little bit like, hey, we need to see how this goes with this next phase where we have tabletop or maybe limited mobility robots. But what are people thinking and talking about in that field? Sure. I think the first thing I would like to add that we take this seriously, right? I think with everything that's being developed, we need to understand what you're dealing with. So we have actually appointed a very seasoned expert on AI ethics and responsible innovation. I think her name is Dr. Evit Dotan. She's currently co-chairs the ethical research at University of Pittsburgh. She has been involved. She is frequently quoted by TechCrunch and New York Times on a lot of AI and ethics articles. So I've been we've been working with her to formulate some of the core tenets, right? And some of the things, again, there's kind of a low-hanging fruits here. Like there are things like control problems. There are things like data privacy issues, right? There are things that we need to kind of address bang on. I think the control problem is one that could potentially blow up as the killer robot problem, right? The control problem means that if you take an algorithm of a robot or an AI product, what level of autonomy, I mean, what are the points in the algorithm makes control decisions? And do we need an oversight? So if you kind of intercept these points and have an oversight in each of these points, you could de-risk it to some extent, right? So you, you won't let the AI product of the robot to make this control decision until you get an input from a real human. And I think that's that's required. So I think, you know, and especially even in things like elderly care, or there is a legal requirement from the FDA to have this also human in the loop, right? So I think control is pretty much an important part of preventing a potential problem. And I would say that rather than Hollywood tends to glamorize killer robots, right? Hollywood loves killer robots. So if, you, if you're talking about Terminator, Battlestar Galactica. But I think the bigger problem is what I call a classic paperclip maximizer scenario. It's a classic example, right? You accidentally trigger it. I don't know if you heard about it, right? You create an algorithm to maximize paperclips. And it just goes offhand and, you know, it ends up converting the whole world to a paperclip by mistake, Right. That's the real thing that we need to be worried about. We may accidentally trigger one of this. And for the AI, AI doesn't have emotion. It just goes about doing its job efficiently, right? It's like when you are crossing the road, you see an anthill, you step on the ant, but you don't actually like 
or hate the ant. It's just inconsequential. I don't want to put it like this. But the thing is that this is how an AI, yeah, AI would look. I mean, AI doesn't hate or love you, but it's just inconsequential. You're just a barrier to this core objective, right? And that's the risk. So we need to, we're going to hit the paperclip maximizer first before we hit any doomsday scenarios. And any doomsday scenario would be an evolution of a paperclip maximizer scenario. This is the way I would look at it, right? But there is a real risk. I think, I mean, you're playing with fire. Um, we are dealing with, even chat GPT is, has passed bar exams, scored 90% in a lot of the tests. So I think it's, and it's intelligent. I think there's a debate where people say that it is not intelligent. It's actually a language model that is creating and connecting answers. But the trouble with that is that that's what the brain also does to a large extent, right? What does a brain, human brain do? Yeah, so I think that's the job well. So I think there's a real scenario. There's a real risk. We need to be careful. And this is something for the first time in human history. I think it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. It's the first time in human history. I think we have something this powerful. I would let that sink in. Yeah. Do you think there's any way to like, hard code in the laws of robotics or something like that is that yeah is that a solution that is available yeah yeah we could do that i think the government should definitely play a role but i think usually with these things i think the government has to play a bigger role in kind of creating i think the society needs to be prepared for the changes i think this is where i think the government should be concentrating right before the employment market i think most of the jobs that exist now in 10 years is not going to exist it's going to change drastically. So is the government ready to reskill people to get them for the next labor market? It's not that there won't be jobs. There will be jobs. But the jobs will be different. And I think it's a government's job to kind of prepare for this new future. Right now, they are not seeing the bus coming, right? <laughs> it's coming. And I think it's going to hit us soon. And I think at that time, it'll be a problem. In terms of legislation and regulation, it's a very, very tricky area. I mean, if you see the censorship on internet, how much of that really worked out, Alan, right? I think we have tried. And once a cat is out of the bag, it's out of the bag, right? There is limited things you can do. I mean, right tomorrow, if the United States and the EU decides that they're going to ban AI research, what difference do you think it's going to make, right? It's going to still continue in corners of the internet and corner labs, and it's going to still make its way out of the labs. Might take a little longer, but... Yeah, yeah, it's still going to happen. But yeah, yeah. Now, my fear is, I mean, I've been pretty vocal about this current regulatory talk and what the EU has done really focuses on what I think it's going to amount to is protecting current special interests. So job protection, trying to shape the dialogue for political benefit. Like I say, like AI alignment can't mean agreement. (laughs) You know, alignment doesn't mean that the AI has to agree with you, right? And very little, very little concentration on the existential risk. And I think most of the regulation right now will probably hobble AI's beneficial effects and do nothing to stop the doomsday scenario. So that's what I'm hoping through part of the podcast to help educate regulators. Analogy, I don't know if you saw the movie Oppenheimer. You must have seen it. It's one of the recent movies that have come out. I mean, there is an in- incident in the movie where when they trigger the atom bomb for the first time, they don't know whether it will cause a chain reaction that will destroy the world, right? So that's a good analogy, right? There is a risk. There's a clear risk that people did calculate it. I mean, that's only one track. Trouble with AI is that you're going to have an infinite number of tracks for each use case you're developing in five to 10 years. So there is some serious work. 
we need to do in figuring out, you know, what are the endpoints and, you know, how do we get there, right? I think people in general has been, I mean, humanity for its own good has been pretty smart about these things throughout history, right? So my bet is that people will figure out. I think there'll be human in the loop for each of the decision before we give it full autonomy. There are going to be some mistakes. There are going to be some accidents. Again, you can't avoid it. But I think we need to figure out these use cases that's going to potentially blow up. I think that's kind of important. Yeah, I do feel like there's a part where, yeah, people talk about Terminator robots. And to be honest, I think we're going to build Terminator robots with or without AI. At some point, AI is just software, right? So processing data. But if humans are directing robots and using them to fight with each other, I don't know. That just seems to me like that's like a drone now, right? I think that's going to happen. So part of the vision, I think, is going to happen no matter what, because we're going to build it. I think the fear is somebody creates like a uh, agent GPT type open source that can upload into a humanoid robot. And all of a sudden you have this robot that you can give like vague commands to, and then it can do all this extrapolation and ends up with a paperclip problem, right? I think that that's sort of my version. It's not, we are going to build killer robots no matter what. <laughs> and the military is going to do it. It's just a question of like, are we going to have these autonomous things that have their own ability to evolve? Or at some point, do they get smarter than we are? Those kinds of things, I think, are what the most worry is. See, as you said, Alan, I think it's going to happen, right? I mean, even if you or me don't agree, or even if like big companies, let's look at even big companies, let's say even Google, Microsoft, and Apple, let's say three of them comes in and decide on Amazon. And they have a policy that it's still going to come out of the labs and somebody's going to create it, right? It's very hard to keep these things under wraps, so it's going to come out. That's my whole angle with the company, right? You can't prevent many of the things. You might as well as join the race and probably try your best to make a better outcome for all of us. So this is the way I, I think about it. Right? I think you listed your potential humanoid robot as five foot four. So I was glad that you made it shorter than I am. I just as long, <laughs> if it were taller than I am, I'd be more worried. <laughs> sure, and that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Actually, that's kind of an interesting thing. People are intimidated by robots that are bigger. It's kind of an intimidating. Mm-hmm. There is something called an uncanny valley, where you know the closer you make a robot to a human form, human face, and emotion, it just freaks us out. It's kind of an inter- interesting topic yeah. for another day. Right? <laughs> so happy to. I'm sure that's uh, going to be a right field for study in the future. And then tell us actually one thing I didn't hit on earlier. I'm curious. So it sounded like you announced that you guys are using ChatGPT and some of the the more near-term robots, so like tabletop and restaurant. How is that going and how has that changed things at all? Yeah, I think it's it's a very powerful tool, right? So we could use it, we could create templates for elderly care. If you build a bit of a customization, I think it opens up a whole plethora of new ways to communicate. And this thing is really, really powerful, right? I think you can really teach it a lot of stuff. It still needs a filter but it can have a more fluid interface with people. And I think robotics, you know, there is a lot of use case for large language models in robotics, right? Let's give you an interesting example is probably understanding the environment is kind of a problem similar to LLM. So if a robot looks around and it wants to comprehend what it sees, where it is, 
what it has to do, then an LLM trained to do that, LLM is a large language model, which is what the ChatGPT is, right? So an LLM trained to do that could have a direct use case in robotics, right? So once you build some of this for robotics, I think there is an interesting use case for that. But ChatGPT on its own, I think it kind of makes it easier for a lot of people to interact with the robot because now you can ask all kinds of questions and, you know, we don't need to filter and process and, you know, it does make a difference. Right. I love that idea about, yeah, templating seems like a really powerful thing, ChatGPT, that you can have. The other thing, you know, my take is LLMs will become, I mean, obviously there'll be these large well, they're all large, large language models, but you have these really general ones that are very powerful across a lot of parameters. But increasingly, you'll get like a really good healthcare one or maybe like a really good elder care one that's really focused on, and it's much more highly accurate in that. So it'd be interesting in the different applications. Like, I don't know, maybe there'll be a, like a restaurant LLM that'll be loaded into your uh, absolutely into your tabletop. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting journey but i also i mean there's another school of thought which feels that i mean there is some people worrying that a chat gpt6 could be an agi right i think that's unlikely because llm the way it's designed to run i think it has hit its peak i don't think there'll be so much of a drastic change on the next version of llm coming out right i think we need a new paradigm like a new llm it's going to happen in the next five years for the next leap. So we're not going to see a lot of progress from the LLM. I mean, this is my take on it, right? And I I think an AGI, I mean, LLM on its own is already exhibiting some level of AGI, right? If you think about it, there is some level of AGI it's exhibiting. You know, it can answer, I mean, it can prepare very good legal notices for us. We tried that. <laughs> it does a lot of good market research. It's pretty, right, it's pretty compelling emails. So I think it's already behaving like an AGI from some aspect. But I, I really don't think a ChatGPT 6 or a 7, or even if you increase it to 10 billion parameters, I think the the whole model has hit this threshold. Right? I think we need something new yeah. for us to move forward. This might do sense on it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it'll be a new paradigm. Maybe it won't be a transformer model. Yeah. Yeah, And I see a lot of work, like I mentioned, in making these more smaller, lighter, more focused models. That's going to be a lot of work over the next few years, because I think, you know, ChatGPT is great at these general tasks, but it really does kind of fail when you get really deep on something, particularly if, you know, it doesn't have access to the data that you have. Right. So, and then like, I, I just see like the amount of data you guys must be collecting on having these things in the field must be like a gold mine, right? Absolutely. Going forward, that, that sort of dark data to a chat GPT, right? All this data you're getting in the interaction. So that'll be a powerful tool. Sure. Excellent. Any last words? I mean, I know there are going to be a bunch of senators and congressmen calling you about killer robots and how do we stop them? So Arshad's a guy to go to. He's, he's going to be our, <laughs> our, our man on the front lines. Maybe it's just get like better killer robots before the other killer robots come out. That's the, that's the key. <laughs> sure. As I said, Alan, I think I'm very optimistic. I think it's going to create a better future. It's going to empower a lot of space travel. We're going to have a very different hundred years because of AI. I think that's my two cents. Even like even longevity, I think we're going to all live up to 150 years. So this is what my, I, I think is going to happen. So. Wow. 
I've heard that. Okay, so what do you think AI is going to do that's going to allow that? I think AI is going to solve a lot of the DNA markers. It's going to do a lot of things in healthcare where it's going to eradicate and, you know, it's going to decelerate aging for sure. I think in 10 years, with the data it's collecting, it's very easy to predict and it's going to kind of unravel everything. So I think living to 150 years, I think it's almost a certainty in the next 20 to 25 years. <laughs> okay. So here's my question that I, I have a suspicion. Don't you think it can make us smarter? Like it can figure out how to manipulate our DNA so that like maybe we can keep up with the AGI. Yeah, that's a very good one. It could. It could do that. And I think some of the works that they're doing with Neuralink, where it's actually connected with a lot of, lot of external network could also be instrumental but i think i think it could potentially and again this is again a very very complex topic right in terms of ethics and in terms in terms of again i think we're going to be faced with a lot of these challenging questions in the next 10 to 15 years from a legal perspective see what's happening with autonomous cars i mean it's a field day right one accident and you know you don't know the rules who do you charge who do you give the ticket to who's liable I think from a legal perspective, there's going to be a lot of new work to be done in the next 10 years. And I think it's coming. If you don't like it, I don't like it. It's not going to matter. It's coming. So we all should be prepared for it. And I'm pretty certain that it will be for the positive betterment of humanity, for sure. I mean, that's my two cents. That's excellent. Well, that's a great vision. Well, Arshad, thanks so much for joining us today. And it was great. It's fascinating work. And if people want to find out more, where would they reach out to you? They can always go to a website. We have a lot of stuff on our website, including our videos, white papers, case studies. We are very responsive on the website. And we have several initiatives also that we are starting. And a lot of press writing about us, including Trust Company, Mashable, Popular Science, very recently. So I guess everybody loves AI and robots. It's not Leo Alan, so I think, you know, it's quite... <laughs> of course, everyone loves that. It used to not be cool, now it's super cool. We'll put some of that in the show notes, and that's ingendynamics.com, right, for, for someone yeah. who wants to check out the website. But Thank you very much for having me, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time today, and you have a good one, okay? Likewise. Enjoy it. AI, Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, Thanks for listening.